Let's pray together. Lord God, in you is everything that matters. Life, power, love, redemption. All of these things are held in your storehouses of heaven and you graciously release them to your people. Caring for us from your abundance when you would be within your rights to keep them for yourself. You are the gracious and good God of heaven who made all things and who loves your people. Your people are a redeemed people, O oh God, redeemed from sin, redeemed from misery. Before you, uh, we are nothing but vanity, iniquity, and perishing. We cannot deliver ourselves, and apart from you, we're in despair. But a resource is found in you. Even though we didn't deserve or desire it, you devised an everlasting plan, honorable to your perfections, which even angels desired to look into. Oh God, you rescued sinners through your Son, showing the world and the watching universe just how holy and gracious you are. And so we thank you, O oh God, for meeting our needs. We thank you, O oh God, for sending your Son. We thank you, O oh God, for making us part of the body of Christ, for giving us a family of believers who are all resting in you, looking to you, and worshiping you. We thank you for protection in dangerous times. When so many live in the midst of, of danger and, and pain, suffering and persecution, you have placed us in a relatively safe place, and in so doing, you have shown us a measure of kindness. But we do ask, O oh God, for your church, especially your church in the West, a church that has of late been tempted to become complacent in our comforts. O oh God, protect us from complacency. We ask that you would give us a holy dissatisfaction that desires to see your great commission fulfilled throughout the world. That you would help us to regard your glory and the spread of your gospel as our greatest, most important mission in this world. We lift before you this evening, O oh God, those who are sick. We have thankfully as a church, O oh God, up to this point been protected from uh, any occurrences of COVID-19 as far as we know. And the, yet we know that there are so many who are struggling with illness, even in our own city, even in our own metropolitan area, the Jackson area. And so we ask for protection and healing, but we also recognize that to be unfaithful is worse than sickness. To be faithless is far worse than anything else. And so we ask you to grant your suffering people faith, grant them trust, grant them rest in you and in your son. Be with us now, O oh God, as we continue in our worship by hearing your word and hearing what you have to say to us. So would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear wonderful things from your scripture? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our scripture reading uh, last week, you will probably remember that we were introduced finally to David. To this man who's being anointed as king. And yet we also know that the story of Saul continues. 
Saul's story is not over, even though God has rejected him from being his king. And so we continue in the narrative in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we read verses 14 to 23. Hear now the word of God. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you send food from heaven tonight? Just as you fed us this morning by showing the truth to us and being the truth for us and giving us all we need, would you do the same tonight? Give us yourself so that we can take you with us tomorrow as we live in this world, wherever it is that you have us to be. We ask you to send your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there are some things in the Bible that I think often leave us scratching our heads. You know, we read a passage and God just does something in that passage that we would not come up with if we were the one writing the story, right? If we were writing the story, there are things in this book that we almost certainly would not include. And, you know, we should, we should really expect that from God. We should expect it more than we do. Part of the reason is the Bible pr uh, prepares us for that. In Isaiah 55, God reminds us, Your ways are not my ways, and your thoughts are not my thoughts, says God. We don't think like God. Uh, Psalm 50, God gives a similar rebuke. He says, You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought that I was one like yourself. And he's not. He's not like us. That's the point. And we may make this mistake when we think about what we expect God to act like, what we expect God to be like. Uh, tonight's passage is one of those passages that really show this to us. God is not like us at all. He does things different from us. He acts in ways we don't expect. And yet, in the end, I, I hope you will also see that that is very good news. It is very good news 
that God is not like us. It's very good news that he does things in a way different than we would do them. Because in the midst of God's almost befuddling behavior in the beginning of this chapter, the pieces are beginning to fall into place and we do see the whole picture of what God is doing here, at least from the perspective and the vantage point of the cross now here where we are in human history. Tonight's passage follows a very straightforward structure. In the, in the passage, a problem is presented. In this case, the problem is the harmful spirit. And then a solution is provided by God. And then we see at the very end how God's solution worked. Very straightforward. Right? The problem is presented, then it's solved. And so we're going to do this through three points, three, three uh, waypoints on the journey from the problem to the solution. And it's a harmful haunting, a providential proximity, and refreshing relief. Harmful haunting, providential proximity, and refreshing relief. First, we have what I'm calling a harmful haunting. Saul experiences something that may genuinely be very puzzling to us right and this and it happens in two stages the first thing we see in verse 14 is we're told that the spirit of yahweh departed from saul earlier we saw that when samuel anointed saul the spirit rushed upon him is what the text said and so what happened there saul was empowered to fulfill his task to fulfill his calling as king. And we may find this, this puzzling, but often what you find in the Old Testament is that the Spirit rushes upon his servants to help them accomplish something. And it doesn't, it's not the same thing as conversion. To have the Spirit rush upon you does not necessarily mean that somebody is converted. Now in the New Testament, we know from Paul that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not Converted, You don't belong to Jesus at all. But the uh, redemptive historical activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was such that the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody, even somebody unsaved like Saul, and would uh, accomplish his, his, uh, his ends through the means of his servant, one way or the other. And that's what Saul did. Um, the Spirit's presence here do, then doesn't mean that Saul was converted and then he became unconverted. What it means is that God had enabled Saul to do exactly what God had for Saul to do. And so what does God do? He removes his spirit from Saul and he does it as a form of judgment, right? He's no longer equipped to be king. It's almost like before this moment he had the sword in his hand and he could defend himself. And he could defend Israel. And now with the spirit revoked and taken away, it's as though Saul is unequipped. Now he has no weapon. He has no defense. He's like a city without walls now. And when this happens, immediately something else takes place. It's the second part of Saul's experience. The text says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, the first part, and... A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, here's the tricky thing about this. There are some translations that say that this isn't just a harmful spirit, but an evil spirit. Um, the, the, Greek, the Hebrew word is the same both ways. Harmful, evil, they, they both are, are the same. 
Uh, but I think that uh, we understand that this idea of an evil spirit coming from the Lord is troubling on some level for, for good reasons. I think actually the ESV is wise to translate the word here as harmful because it does help to avoid some confusion. Let me explain. Ultimately, we, we know that even bad things that happen occur under the sovereignty of God. In, in some sense, we know that God rules over even the worst events of our lives. Uh, think of the worst event that ever happened in human history. The worst thing that ever happened in human history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, what did the text say about that in the book of Acts? It said that God predestined that event to take place. The very worst event that ever happened in human history, the only time an innocent ever really suffered, was when Jesus was put to death on the cross, and the Bible says God predestined that. He planned that. That was his devising that it would take place. And yet one of the other things we also see in the Bible is that the Bible speaks in roundabout terms when it comes to God's relationship with evil. The, vi the Bible very rarely speaks this directly of evil in relation to God. You have a passage in the book of Amos where God says, I send darkness, I create evil. Um, and yet there are ways that you need to, to understand that passage. But that's probably the most direct the Bible ever gets in speaking this way about God when it comes to the issue of evil. The biblical pattern when it comes to evil and God's sovereignty, reminds us that when evil happens, it always happens because an evil person wanted to do evil. God decrees evil, but he does not create evil. He's not the author of evil. Whatever this harmful spirit is, God did not need to make the spirit harmful. He did not need to make the spirit evil. <clears throat> It's not as though there was a good spirit, and then God transformed it into an evil spirit. We know that there are evil spirits in this universe. There are evil spirits in this world. We know that there was a rebellion in heaven led by Lucifer, the chief of the angels. We know that, that a large number of angels fell with him, and those fallen angels we call demons. We also know that God is actively restraining evil all the time. Uh, the book of Revelation gives this image of the four angels holding back the four winds of the earth, keeping evil and judgment from cascading across mankind before the appointed time. To accomplish his purpose, God has no need to create or produce evil to create harmful spirits. All he has to do in a world that is filled with evil spirits is remove his restraining hand. However, we could say that God uses evil, or that he uses wicked men or wicked spirits to accomplish his larger purposes and bring judgment. Um, this isn't very difficult to prove. The Old Testament talks about the nations uh, in this way. God talks about the nation of Assyria as coming to destroy Israel, and the Bible says that it is a judgment against Israel. And yet it also reminds us in Isaiah 10 that God will punish Assyria for harming God's people. So see, God uses evil agents to accomplish his good purposes of bringing judgment. 
He reminds us in Jeremiah 50 that Babylon will destroy Israel, but then he reminds us in chapter 50 that he's going to judge Babylon for doing that. You see, he is sovereign over their evil, and he uses that evil to accomplish his purpose of judgment. And if he can do this with nations, if he does this with nations, then we also know he does this with individuals. You see how he deals with the agency of Satan in the book of Job. Before Satan can attack Job, what does he have to do? He has to go to God, and he has to seek his permission. So we know this is how God rules even over individual spirits, not just nations. And that seems to be what happens here. As an act of judgment, and under the providence of God, the Spirit harms Saul. So that we know God's judgment is, that this is God's judgment, the author makes very clear by saying this Spirit is from the Lord. Uh, This is not a happenstance, as though that were possible, this is not a happenstance uh, moment where uh, Saul is attacked by a spirit in somewhat random fashion. The author of the text wants us to understand, no, this is very directly, very intentionally meant to be judgment from God. So we don't need to be troubled by the thought that God would send this harmful spirit upon Saul. After all, this is a judgment. Saul deserved Far worse than this. Saul has abandoned the Lord. He's refused to repent. He's turned his back on the way of God. And and this spirit is a show of judgment from him. God really is, in a sense, lifting his restraining protection from Saul that Saul had been living under up to this point. So that's the first thing I want you to see that uh, the, the problem of harmful spirits, hopefully this at least gives you some framework for thinking about how this can be. But one other thing is happening here that, that I don't want you to move too quickly past. When you see this harmful spirit come, what I want you to, to picture this as is, picture this as a small-scale picture of Israel's future. Because what is Saul, as I mentioned before, he is a city without walls. He is like a city without protection. And so God has let this harm come upon Saul as a form of judgment. He allows this evil entity to have its way in Saul's life as a way of punishing him. And what we're going to see, if you just move the camera back away from Saul, and you look bigger picture at the whole nation that Saul is ruling over, you've got this nation of Israel. And when you look at what's going to happen over the next thousand years of Israel's life, between 1000 BC and 0 AD, birth of Christ, 3 BC, birth of Christ, um, you're going to notice this, that God is going to continue to do this throughout Israel's life. Over and over again, we'll see that the Philistines are used by God to harm Israel as a judgment. The walls of Israel, will be of, of Jerusalem, will be torn down. The city will be left defenseless. Saul is like a picture of what God is going to be doing with Israel and with Jerusalem over and over again. What does God do with Assyria? He destroys the northern kingdom. What does he do with Babylon? He destroys the southern kingdom. He tears down the walls. He takes away their temples. 
We don't see this in scripture, but in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus comes, and what does he do? He tears Jerusalem down, he tears down the walls, he takes the temple down so that there is not one brick laying upon another. So what we need to do is we need to see what tonight's event really is. It is a small-scale taste of what God later does with the whole nation. If he can send a harmful spirit as a form of judgment, he can send a harmful nation as well, and he will. And if he can send a judgment, the really good news is he can also send the rescue from that judgment. And in this case, David is the solution to God's judgment. And so we have a harmful haunting, we have a judgment from God that, that harms and troubles Saul. But second tonight, we see how God is going to deal with that problem by the answer that he gives in the second point, which is providential proximity. Having fun with alliteration tonight. We've seen the problem, and tonight we also see that God is going to solve at least Saul's momentary problem by means of someone we've already met, and we met him last week, and it was David. Saul doesn't seem to know what to do about his torments from this harmful spirit. He's, he seems de defenseless, which he is. Uh, he seems to not have any idea what to do about this, but his servants have a plan. Bad rulers are oftentimes blessed by at least having good advisors. Good advisors whose advice they need to listen to. And so his servants have this plan. They say, look, we'll find someone to play the liar for you, and it'll calm you down. And Saul loves this plan, and so one of his servants pipes up and says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. <clears throat> So, so his servants have very high praise for David. They're heaping praise upon David. And remember, that David, David has not fought Goliath yet. We don't know all of the exploits of David's life at this point, but we do know he's quite young. We also know, apparently, that he's quite skillful when it comes to fighting. Um, by the way, we could go through this list of things this servant says about David, and we could analyze the character of David. I think there would be great riches there. But I think instead, we just need to notice roughly what he says, right? He says he's a good musician. He says that he's a brave man. He says that he knows how to fight. Something that's important for being around the king or being around a ruler is you need to be prudent in speech. In other words, you know when to speak, and you also know when to be silent. That's both sides of prudence, right? You need to know when to shut up, and you need to know when it's time to open your mouth. And he says he's a man of good presence. I, I think what he means when he says good presence is he's saying that this is a man with confidence and he's personable. You can get along with this guy. And then he says the most important thing that you can say about anyone. He says, Yahweh is with him. Yahweh is with him. And you may have, you may have a lot going for you. You may be smart, you may be clever, you may be strong, you may be wealthy, you may be funny, you may have great scores and high marks across every area of your life, but if Yahweh is not with you, then none of those other things about you are really going to matter at all. 
course, the servant's instincts are right. At least in the short term, they're right. The music will help. The playing will set him at ease, and so they send for David, and David comes. But don't make the mistake of thinking that it's a coincidence that David ends up in the court of the king. Because this is all by the providence of God. And coincidence and providence are very different things. When we talk about coincidence, we're talking about a worldview that says things happen without any intentionality on anyone's part. Things happen without any planning on, on anyone's part, right? Um, <clears throat> we live in a, in a world, we live in an age where people believe that we are surrounded by coincidences, right? The placement of our planet in relation to the sun as perfectly conducive to life is a coincidence, some say. We just happen to be the perfect distance from the sun for us to live without burning or without freezing. Uh, the, the moon just happens to be the perfect distance from the earth so that solar eclipses are possible. <clears throat> it just so happens the moon is the perfect size in proportion to the earth, to the sun. It just, <clears throat> it just so happens that we have an atmosphere around our earth that traps oxygen in and allows life to exist on our planet. It just happens to be the case that pro protein-based life forms came into existence on our planet, crawled onto the land, and began walking around, thinking for themselves, and eventually asking the question, why do I exist rather than not exist? All coincidence, some say. But we don't live in that kind of universe. We might seem to. From the human perspective, we can't see the hand that is guiding all of these things. And we might even talk about coincidences from time to time. Maybe we run into somebody we've not seen in a very long time. And we might talk about it as if it's a coincidence. But we have to know that from God's perspective, we do not live in such a universe. We live in a universe that is entirely coincidence-free. We do not live in a universe of chance. We live in a universe of providence. When we talk about the providence of God, we are talking about His everyday nourishing and, and care over all things, all people, and all events. My favorite definition of God's providence is from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism says this is God's providence. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Here we are in the season of COVID-19, social slowdown, economic slowdown. Isn't there a comfort here in knowing that health and sickness, riches and poverty, come to us not by chance, 
but by his fatherly hand, isn't there a comfort in knowing that even though we never would have guessed back in December of last year that this is the way we would be spending the month of April, God knew a thousand years ago that things would happen just like this. There are no surprises in a universe where God exercises his providence. This isn't just a man-made teaching, though. It's in the Bible. Look in Acts 17 at how Paul talks. Paul talks about something as mundane as where we live. What does Paul say? He says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's talking about where you live. And Paul, Paul is saying that even the fact that you are in Pearl, Mississippi, or Florence, Mississippi, or wherever you might happen to live, nothing about that is a coincidence. It is all by the providence of God. Nothing of your life is an accident. Your life may be at a standstill right now. Your productivity may be lower than it's ever been. And yet, none of it is an accident. R.C. Sproul called God's providence the invisible hand. And we all know this, I think, but sometimes we can see God's invisible hand more clearly than other times. Right? You can see the providence of God very clearly, I think, in tonight's passage, right? It just so happens that this man knows of David. It just so happens that David knows how to play, or play the lyre, and he's quite good. It just so happens that this man who knows David is standing right there when the time is needed for David to be called upon to play and use his skills. See, God isn't just showing mercy by taking care of Saul's momentary relief. He's also setting events in motion that will eventually put God's chosen king on the throne through no effort of David's. God is at work. And he isn't just doing that in David's case. He does it all the time. And this means something for each of our lives, right? The discussion of God's providence is more than just philosophy or, or nerds arguing about the nature of reality. This is deeply applicable to each of us. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism says it so well. It says that this is what knowing God's providence means in practice. So they give an application. What is it? How do you apply the providence of God to somebody? The Heidelberg says... We can be patient in adversity because of God's providence. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. That goes for virus particles. They are his creatures too. Without his will, they cannot so much as move. 
How does this apply to David? David is going to face adversity. <clears throat> and yet none of it is an accident. He will spend years and years facing adversity, being hunted by this king that God has rejected. Because of God's providence, though, <clears throat> as the Heidelberg Catechism says, David can be patient. David can know that because apart from God's providence, Saul cannot so much as move. How can the providence of God minister to you? Well, I mean, we've seen it already. Whatever adversity you face, God intends for you to know that he is in control, not out of control. He intends you to know that whatever the future holds, nothing can separate you from his love. That's his promise here. Nothing you experience is an accident. Nothing that you go through is a coincidence. His invisible hand has been with you from the very beginning and will be with you as his, as his child to the very end. God is at work. He wants you to know it. Whether you can see his invisible hand or whether you are struggling to see what he's doing. God provides for Saul and Israel through providential proximity, by bringing David exactly where he needs to be. Third tonight, we see refreshing relief. We, we see the result of David playing in verse 23. This is what it says. It says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. <clears throat> Something about the music brings Saul a kind of relief. There are many Jewish commentators who appeal to historical evidence that this isn't just a tune being plucked out on the strings, but that there are also lyrics that would have accompanied the playing as well. And we know David uh, was a singer. We know that David wrote many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And so it is not a stretch whatsoever to think that David is singing lyrics, reminding Saul of God's promises here. Listen to what Martin Luther says. David often banished the evil spirit of Saul or restrained and subdued it with his lyre. For the evil spirit is ill at ease wherever God's word is sung or preached in true faith. He is a spirit of gloom and cannot abide where he finds a spiritually happy heart. That is, where the heart rejoices in God and in his word. And so the power that God grants some peace, so the power of God grants some peace to a man, even if he isn't converted. Um, there's something interesting I've, I've heard from people who are not believers before. I've, I've heard of unbelievers who, who told me they like to listen to Christian radio. Um, and they even like to listen to Christian music because, even though they don't believe any of it, um, and they said that they, uh, you know, they just say that they find some comfort from listening to it. And, and I find that so fascinating, right? It, I mean, I'm a Christian, and, and I don't always enjoy Christian radio. <laughs> um, but it, it's funny, though. It's almost as though unbelievers find some kind of temporary worldly comfort from hearing God's truths, even if it isn't a saving comfort. 
We know at least this about Saul. The music gives him some kind of relief, but it only is a temporary kind of relief, right? It makes him feel good for the moment, but it doesn't lift the real burden that Saul carries because that can only come through repentance. That can only come through trusting in God, and Saul won't do those things. So all he gets is relief or hope for the moment. If I could be really direct for a moment, David here points us to Jesus, because what he's doing is he's pointing us to the other son of Jesse, who comes much later. But what happens here differs from Jesus in one very important respect. You see, after Saul hears the music, Saul becomes troubled again. Right? The music is, is temporal. The music doesn't last. It doesn't solve his real issue, which is deep and spiritual. Right, So whenever this harmful spirit comes, David has to play, and he has to keep playing. And he has to come back, and he has to play another song. And so David is, David's playing is a hint that there is still something greater, that David's playing is not an end in itself. You see, there's a greater healing for Saul if he'll repent and if he'll trust in God. The fact that David has to keep coming back over and over again should be showing Saul that he's not actually on the right track with this. This is not the real solution. And here's my encouragement. In this life, you are going to have experiences that will give you a taste of, of something, something transcendent. When we talk about transcendence, we're just talking about something that's beyond this, beyond this life that we know. Uh, there is more to you than your body and your life in the here and now. That's what we're talking about when we talk about transcendence. And, and maybe, maybe you have experiences that remind you of the transcendent, of the fact that you are not just what you see here, but there is more to you than this, that you were made for something greater. I hope you've had those kind of experiences, those kind of tastes of, of beautiful things that make you yearn for more. Um, maybe you go to a beautiful place and see an amazing sight. You, you go to the Grand Canyon and you marvel at the greatness of it and the beauty of it. You hear a beautiful song that brings you to tears. You see a sky full of stars and you have your breath stolen away. You see your child born. When I was a teenager, I went to Lake Michigan on a camping trip with some friends. And in my mind, it's the first memory I really have of this experience of transcendence. I don't have any other, way, other word for it. But I remember I left my friends behind at the campsite and I walked about half a mile through the sand dunes and over the hill and I stood by the shore of Lake Michigan at night. And if my memory is right, the, the moon was not out and all you could see were stars. And you could see uh, some light on the waves of the water and the waves were crashing and I just remember standing in the uh, on the shore of the beach with my feet in the water and watching the waves crash and looking into the sky and seeing just numberless stars and constellations. And I felt like my whole life was before me. And I had this sense of purpose 
And I had a sense that I had a place in God's universe. And I still sort of look back on that moment. It still is this moment that I've never been able to shake. And I've always wanted to have that sense return to me. But what I can definitely tell you is that in God, you find that desire and that need for transcendence. You find it fulfilled and satisfied. Because when you have moments like that, and maybe you've had moments like that before as well, but when you have moments like that, every one of these things you need to understand is a hint that there is something out there that is meant to satisfy. And we haven't found it yet. I didn't get to stay by that beach. And I didn't get to stand there forever. You see, I had to go back. I had to eat. I had to live. I had to return to, to Kansas, at least at that point. You can't stay in these moments forever. David can't play the liar for Saul forever. All of these things, all of these experiences, whatever you've ever known, all they are is hints that there is something out there and that you haven't found it yet. They are signposts in a strange land that are pointing us to real destinations. Every pleasure and joy that we know is almost like if God is speaking to us and he's saying, yes, joy is real. No, you won't find it here. Lift up your eyes. Higher, higher, higher. Wouldn't it be tragic if we heard the song and just stopped there? Wouldn't it be upsetting if we just saw the things this life has to offer and concluded, well, I guess that's what I'm made for? People do that all the time. They do it every day. C.S. Lewis compares it to people making mud pies. They're content to sit and make mud pies when they could have a day at the sea. That's what we're all doing if we, if we just live for the momentary happiness, but we don't go where they are, the happiness is leading us. And it's tragic because all of those things were just signposts. They were just hints at something greater that's beyond all of this. Now, here's what I want to say. David plays the song, and there is relief for the moment. This world is full of pleasures that can only serve as sign markers to something greater, and they, they will fulfill you for the moment. There, are, there will be moments in this life where you say, I don't need anything else. But those experiences can't fill us because we keep having to come back, right? David plays the liar for Saul, and Saul finds relief for the moment, but the solution isn't, well, Saul says, I guess, David, you have to play 24-7 all the time right the relief that David points David brings points to a song that never ends it points to a savior who never dies it points to a rescuer who never runs out a savior who can destroy the the wages of sin and overthrow the harmful one who's tormenting Saul he's a savior who can satisfy you he can take away your hunger if you'll give it to him. David has to keep coming back and playing. 
And yet Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You don't have to keep eating and eating and eating with Jesus. All this episode can do is give us a faint glimpse of the kind of relief that David's descendant, Jesus, would one day really bring. It's a relief that when you experience it, you'll never lose it. And once you have it, you'll never be able to improve upon it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us the bread that satisfies. Give us that water that will keep us from thirsting anymore. Play us the song that never ends. Protect us from foolishly tasting the things the world gives us and telling ourselves that this is the life, this is what we were made for. No. Remind us that all of these things will one day fade away, that they're perishable, that they won't satisfy us. Help us to learn from Saul, who just wanted to hear a song that would get him through the night. Give us wisdom to look past the moment and have the eyes of eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name.